0: We're making our way through the book of Jeremiah. And as we go through the book of Jeremiah, we're noticing that it's a very persistent theme of gloom and coming judgment. Because Jeremiah was a prophet that had a very difficult job to do. His job was to warn Judah of a coming judgment and to prepare them to be able to face it. Perhaps they could repent... And be spared the judgment to come. But even if they would not repent and be spared the judgment. At least they could be prepared for it. And understand something about the Lord in the midst of it all. But this was a very heart-rending thing for Jeremiah to endure. Because when he pours out and speaks to the people of God. The southern kingdom of Judah. About the terrible judgment that's going to come. He understands these are his cities. These are his people. These are his families. These are people that he knows and loves, and it's his land. He doesn't look at it some cruel, detached thing as if he's a newspaper reporter, just trying to report it objectively. His heart is broken over it all. So look at it here at verse 1, where we read, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. There's something very interesting about the combination of verses 1 and 2 there. Verse 1 is this outpouring of pain, talking about the water that just flows from him. He's crying and he can't stop. Oh, that my head were waters. There's not enough tears in my system to express how terrible I feel about all of this. And so he poetically expresses this idea that he doesn't have enough tears to shed over the slain of the daughter of his people. That's the one side of the equation. The other side of the equation? Frankly, he's ticked off at the wickedness of his people that made this judgment necessary. Look at what he says in verse 2. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them. Well, why does he want to leave them? It's not just so that he can escape judgment, but look at the end of verse 2. For they are all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. You see, Jeremiah is in this place where he understands the terrible nature of the judgment that's going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem. And his heart is broken over that. But at the same time, he understands, and he understands it with all of his heart. They deserved it. Matter of fact, he uses a very interesting phrasing at the end of verse 2 there, where he says, an assembly of treacherous men. That's actually sort of the word that is commonly used in the Old Testament to describe the congregation of God's people. It's like a word for a religious assembly at a festival. It's like saying, the congregation of treacherous men. It's a very vivid and powerful phrase. Now going on now to verse three, and like their bow, they have been bent. They have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and they will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me says the Lord. This is one of the beautiful things, beautiful in a tragic way about the prophets, and Jeremiah is included in that. He speaks about these terrible things in the society, in the culture, but he uses such beautifully poetic language to do it. Did you see there in verse 3 where he says, like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. It's like this. He says, it's like you're bending your mouth like a bow, like a thing, and you're going to shoot out the arrows of lies, and they're going to kill people. They're going to murder them. And he goes on to verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me. Friends, again, this explains why Judah's people and Judah's leaders could lie so easily. They were mired in evil, and they were very far from a real relationship with God. In verse 3, it speaks about they did not know him in a true relational way. They didn't know the Lord. They might have known about him. If we would put it in modern vocabulary, we would say something like this. Oh, they they knew about Jesus, they attended church, they carried a Bible, but they didn't have a real relationship with Jesus. They didn't know him. That's how we would translate into modern terminology the spiritual condition of Judah in those days. But friends, again, it's significant to remember that this comes at the conclusion of this section where Jeremiah desperately lamented the fall and the exile of Judah that was to come. But even in the very depths of his grief, he understood something. He could never forget this, that they deserved it. That it wasn't unfair of God to do this. That the people had turned from the Lord so many times, so powerfully, so decidedly, that what else could God do? I mean, look at the condition as it's described there in verse 5 everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. You know, Jeremiah's very dark description of Judah, I think it also describes our modern culture. We live in an age where the idea of absolute truth is commonly rejected. What is true is not valued. And when that's the case, then societies crumble. You see, that's what it was like in ancient Judah. Truth wasn't valued. And in the modern world, that's just the way people think. It's just the way that people, it comes very natural to them today. It doesn't even seem strange to them to say things like this. Well, that's your truth. My truth is something else. Now listen, it's certainly true that that principle applies to some things. You know what's the best kind of uh, soda pop that a person might drink? Well, one person might prefer one brand, another person prefers another brand. Okay, that might be a matter of personal preference. You might have your truth, so to speak, another. But we understand those things are minor things of a personal preference. But when it comes down to the things that are true and eternal, friends, these are things that last forever. And this our own society is becoming very detached from that idea of what Francis Schaeffer many years ago called true truth not subjective truth but true truth going on now verse 6 he says and through deceit they refuse to know me says the lord friends that is the great cost of embracing and promoting deception since god is a god of truth if you reject the truth you're going to automatically reject god and find yourself far away from him So the judgment was going to come upon Judah. Look at how he develops the idea in verse 7. He says this, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things? Says the Lord. Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they're burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They're gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Do you see what he says there in verse 7? It's very striking. He says, I will refine and try them. Matter of fact, look at the second half of verse 7. It's it's almost one of these mystery verses when we understand God and his character. God asked the question in the second part of verse 7. He says, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Have you ever had that experience as a parent? You you turn to, you know, your spouse. What am I going to do with this boy? Well, what am I going to do with our daughter? What am I going to do? And it's as if God is asking that question. Now, friends, we understand it's an anthropomorphism, correct? This is God putting himself in human terms that we can understand. God isn't really scratching his head. But to show the perplexity of Israel problems, it's as if God's asking the prophet Jeremiah, what am I going to do with these people? And he says, no, I know what I'll do. I will refine them. How's that sound to you, Refining? Well, it's that, yo, man, great, refiner. There used to be a song we'd sing, refiner's fire. You know, kind of a sweet song. Really cool, good song. How, how do you think the gold or the silver feels when it's being refined? <laughs> First, it's hot. That's what it says. I'm dying, I'm melting, is what it says. And then it's scraped off from the dust. It's not a present process, but it's a good one. You see, You only refine something if you haven't given up on it. If you say, there's something good there. Isn't it beautiful that God did not say about ancient Judah, what am I going to do with these people? Get rid of them. No, he said, I'm going to put them through some tough stuff, but it'll have a purpose to refine them. There's something precious there, and I want to get it and capture it and refine it. In the meantime, look at how great their wickedness was. Verse 8, their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. And when the judgment was to come from the Babylonians, it would have an effect on the whole land. That's why he says in verse 10, they are burned up so that no one can pass through. You see, what the prophet's vision of the future, Jeremiah saw the destroyed and burned up cities and villages of Judah. There was no civilization. All there was was a heap of ruins. There was no more livestock and farm animals. There was only a den of jackals. And all of that was going to be the result of the coming Babylonian invasion. Verse 12, he goes on. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and I will give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom they have neither nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Friends, there's a little bit of cause and effect going on here. What's the cause? Look at it there in verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Because they have forsaken my law and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. That's it. You forsake the law of God. You forsake his word, his guidance, his help. There will be trouble to come. But look at what they did instead. Verse 14 speaks of it. It says, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals. Friends, I don't know if you'd like to underline your Bible, but maybe you should underline that in verse 14. But they have walked after the dictates of their own hearts. Sometimes I wonder if the prophet Jeremiah could prophetically see forward to the 21st century. Isn't that it? Isn't that the message we hear from society over and over again? Follow your heart. Come on now, follow your heart. That's how you can find contentment. That's how you'll find happiness. Follow your heart. But I find it interesting how he phrases it. He says there in verse 14, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals. In other words, the pagan gods, which are actually demons in some form or another. Friends, here's the thing. When you follow your own heart, there's something that whispers to you that you are in charge of your own life, and you are running the show. Let me ask you, who's whispering that to you? It's the devil himself. It's the devil himself who has you dancing on his strings, so to speak. You see, to follow your own heart is to be independent from God. And to be independent from God is in one way or another to be serving the darkness. And so this was Judah's problem. And this is what was going to bring this calamity of judgment upon them. You see, they stopped serving Yahweh, but it didn't mean that they stopped worshiping. They would worship themselves and they would worship the Baals. You know, I think I could make a pretty good argument for you That God created human beings to be worshiping creatures. That's why he made us. He made us to be worshiping creatures. And if we stop the legitimate expression of that worship towards the Lord God who actually lives, then that instinct to worship will find itself somewhere or another. Can I give you an example of today's age? Look at the cult. And I don't know any way to describe it other than a cult. Look at the cult of celebrity worship in our culture today. Is it not that? Is it not a strange interest that people have in the lives of others? Now, and many of the people who do this would consider themselves irreligious, but they have to express a worship instinct towards something. And so they express it towards those things in the culture. Well, it was for these reasons why the judgment was going to come upon them. Verse 16, I will feed them this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them among the nations. That's what God says he will do. And look at the result of it now. Verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us. That our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with waters. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We're greatly ashamed because we're forsaken the land. Because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women. And let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. And everyone her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows and has entered our palaces to kill the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Wow. Verse 17, do you see what it starts off with? Consider and call for the mourning women. You know what it's referring to here? It's referring to the custom in the ancient Middle East. And I understand it's still a custom in some parts of the Middle East where you actually hire super dramatic women to come and mourn at certain occasions. You do, you pay them a little bit of money, and they come and they add the appropriate touches of misery and and outcry and all this. And that's what you do, you hire professional mourners. So you know what Jeremiah is doing? He's prophetically looking at the judgment that's to come upon Judah and the devastation that the Babylonian armies are gonna wreak upon. He goes, better hire lots of mourners. That's going to be a great employment opportunity. Hire lots of them. Hire them and tell them to do their job. But not only that. Did you hear what he said? He said, you also better have them teach their daughters wailing and their friends. There's going to be so much work for lamentation to be done. That not even the professional mourners can handle it. Why? Notice it. Verse 21. For death has come through our windows and has entered our palaces. This is a very interesting passage where Jeremiah personifies death have you ever heard of the idea of the grim reaper where death is personified as a guy kind of in a hood you know in sort of this big robe and he has a how do you call that thing a sith sith sickle i okay, guess i'll call it a sickle he has a great big sickle you know and he's go and what does he do with the sickle he's a grim reaper because he reaps humanity and he takes him off in a harvest you want to know This is kind of a biblical way of expressing because here he's personified death. Look at it there in verse 21. For death has come through our windows and has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. I mean, the tragedy, the lamentation of this. Now look at verse 22. Speak thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. It's the grim reaper of death. It's as if death goes and mows them down. And as death, the reaper walks through the fields of slain humanity. Now, back then, a reaper would work like this. They would go and they would cut down a section. And they would pile it up until they got kind of a good handful going. And then they would lay it down. And somebody else, another laborer, would come behind them and pick it up. This is what he's saying. He's saying there's going to be so much death and so much misery that the dead will be lying on the grounds like a harvest and nobody will be there to pick them up. Nobody will be there to bury the dead. Now, friends, you and I would think that's horrific, even more so from this original biblical culture. They go, what a disgrace, what a dishonor that nobody is there to bury the dead. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord. Exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. First thing I want you to understand is those verses will sound familiar to many of you because it's a beautiful section of scripture. Are you a little bit surprised at the context? The context is the misery of judgment. The context is the sense that there's no place to go, that you're engulfed by this judgment that's pouring in. And it's as if the people cry back out to Jeremiah and they say, could you tell us something? Give us something to hang on to. It's if you're telling us that everything's going to be a waste, everything's going to be a ruin. What can we hang on to when it seems like everything's going to be taken away from our world? And Jeremiah says, I'll tell you what you can hang on to. But first, let me tell you what not to hang on to. You see those words in verse 23? Verse 23. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. You see, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, Jeremiah described the things that men and women normally glory in. What do we glory in? We glory in wisdom. We glory in might. We glory in riches. Perhaps for a modern day audience, Jeremiah would have added fame to all of that. I don't know exactly. But there's things that we glory in. oh yes, isn't that wonderful? Man, if my life had that, that would bring me satisfaction. That would make me happy. Now I find the next line very provocative. Verse 24 says, but let him who glories, glory in this. In other words, God says, God did not say don't glory. God wants you to glory in something. What does it mean to glory in something? Well, I don't know if I can perfectly define it, but think about it in these terms. To glory in something, think of the athlete. You know, they just played the World Cup earlier this summer. And uh, the German uh, football or soccer team, they raised that trophy. And in, in some ways you could say it's the most prestigious athletic trophy in the world. So you think of an athlete lifting up a trophy, and you can just see it, right? He's smiling. He's beaming. Why? Because this is what I worked for. This is my satisfaction. This is my reward. This is my happiness. That's what it is to glory in something. Well, can you see the person holding up their wisdom, their wealth, their might, and they're saying, this is my satisfaction. This is my, my happiness. This is my goal in life. This is my fulfillment. Friends, if any of those things are your glory, you're in for a rude surprise. Now, you might be riding high with it right now. Maybe you have a bank account that justifies a little bit of glorying in it. I don't know. But you know, that can change in a hurry, can't it? Maybe you have physical might or ability and you can glory in that in a moment. I'm not saying that you can't glory in those things for a moment. What I'm saying is it's the wrong way. It's never going to last. No, but look at it again. Back at verse 24, he says this. But let him who glories glory in this, let him glory in this that he understands and knows me. God says this, direct your desire to glory in something to the right place, towards me. You you can take true glory in God. You can't, so to speak... Hold on to the Lord and say, you are my satisfaction. You are my might. You are my happiness. You are my goal. God says, yes, I gave you that instinct to glory. I want you to glory in someone. But glory in me, God says. And you will be fulfilled. You know, you could say that one way to state the problem of humanity is that it's constantly showing itself to be satisfied with lesser glories. It's as if God looks to you and means says, stop selling yourself short. You're glorying in this, this. You're glorying in gold. Look at that. You're all, oh, it's a gold, riches, all that. God says, you know what? I paved the streets with that in heaven. That's nothing to me. Glory in something that's really significant. Glory in me, the Lord says. Verse 24, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Look at there in verse 24. For in these I delight. God delights in this display of his nature. God delights to show who he is and his nature, his character. He loves it. Because now I'm giving the most wonderful, beautiful, powerful, expressive thing to the world there ever was. Verse 25. The old the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For these all our nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Maybe somebody was going to trust in their wisdom or their might or their riches. And God says, forget about that. But now here at the end, he goes, you better not also trust in your religious rituals. But but, but Lord, I'm circumcised. God says, it doesn't mean anything to me. Do do you notice the listing that he gives there in verse 25? He says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the Father's corners. He goes on and he lists those people. Right there, Judah is just one among the other nations. If you were a person in Judah at that time, your heart would always have a heart attack to read that. God's listing you just among the other wicked nations. And God says, Because that's how you're living. Don't tell me you're circumcised with the religious ritual. I'm not interested in it because you're not living as if you're separated unto me. That's what God was concerned about. Now into chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Which he speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts down a tree from the forest. The work of the hands, the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak that they must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. I know what you're thinking after that passage. You're thinking, what am I going to do with that Christmas tree that I just bought last year? You see what God says here? First of all, he says, don't learn the way of the Gentiles. He's just folding the thought from the end of chapter nine into the beginning of chapter 10. You're acting like the other nations, but you don't need to. Separate yourself from the Gentiles. Don't live and act like the Gentiles. I want you to not be Conform to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then look at the customs of the people. Verse 3, for the customs of the people are futile, for one cuts a tree from the forest. Then in verse 4, he says, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it will not topple. You see, Jeremiah described the pagan custom of cutting a tree, setting it in a special place, decorating it, and worshiping it. And the worship of the tree is indicated by that phrase in verse 5, where he says, do not be afraid of them. In the sense that someone might give reverence to the tree as an idol. Now look, let's be honest. It's very difficult to read this description and not be thinking about your Christmas tree, isn't it? But listen, I think that there's many reasons why, even though I read this and I believe it, I do not believe, can I just speak, that the practice of having a Christmas tree in the Guzik household violates this in the slightest. And let me explain to you, I'm not going to speak for your household, but I'll speak for my own. Let me explain it to you this way. Based on a passage like this, it's possible that a Christian could be convicted that they should not have a Christmas tree or even celebrate Christmas. Now, if you have that conviction, okay, fine. It's good to remember what Paul wrote. He said, whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans chapter 14, verse 23. And if you cannot celebrate Christmas and have a Christmas tree in faith, well then, don't do it. Nevertheless, I believe that there's many reasons to believe that despite some similarities, the differences between what Jeremiah described and our modern practice of the Christmas tree, the differences are even more significant and profound than the similarities. Let me point some of them out. First of all, Jeremiah spoke regarding the customs of the Gentiles. And in our modern culture, it's not primarily the pagans that honor Christmas. It's the believers. It's Christians. You see, it's our custom to celebrate Christmas. It's not the custom of the Gentiles, by and large, at least not in a reverent, respectful way. Secondly, Jeremiah spoke of believers borrowing customs of unbelievers. But in the modern world, when an unbeliever has a Christmas tree... They're borrowing a custom from believers, not the other way around. So it's the opposite in that sense. Thirdly, Jeremiah spoke of a tree regarded as an idol. And, at least properly understood, the modern Christmas tree is not an idol. Let me say this. If the Christmas tree becomes an idol and an object of worship in your home, then you can get rid of it. But if it's a decoration that reminds you of Christmas, fine. But if it's an idol, well, of course you shouldn't have an idol in your home. But then finally, Jeremiah spoke in a time in history where trees were often directly connected with idolatry. There were many idolatries and uh, pagan shrines that were set up under trees. And they were connected with that very much so. And so uh, this was the idea in Jeremiah's day. I think it's very different from our own day. But I think the principle still applies. Look at it there in verse 5. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Jeremiah mocked the idolatrous worship of inanimate objects such as decorated trees. Why are you worshiping this thing? It can't do any good. It can't do any evil. It's inanimate. And now, beginning at verse 6, is a section where he's going to mock the practice of idolatry even more. And friends, when you think about it logically, idolatry is eminently mockable. I, I like the story that I heard of a South Pacific missionary... He went to go I, some island where there was a tribe of people who had never heard about that. They worshipped idols. They had all these wooden idols. And the idols were very big. They had, a, they had a, a real grip over the consciousness of these people. Well, the guy came to preach the gospel and he saved. He got one of the chiefs of the, the thing saved. And so the chief was going to destroy all the idols of his village. Well, the village was aghast. He said, you can't destroy all the idols. The gods will be very angry at us. So they'll be furious. You can't do this. Well, the chief had now become a Christian. He realized, well, I can destroy the idols. It just doesn't matter. So this is what he did. He go. okay, we'll do it this way. He said, I'm going to set up all the idols. Everybody bring your idols to the center of the city. And they did in the little village. They set them all up. And he put the very biggest idol in the front. And then the chief spoke to all the idols. And he said, okay, idols, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to destroy all of you, but I want to give you warning. Here's your chance. Run away if you can. <laughs> he waited a few minutes. They didn't do anything. And he said, all right, I warned them. And then he went and he destroyed them all. Now, friends, you think, it's laughable, isn't it? Nobody expects the idol to run. Well, then why are you worshiping it? Now, I can't say it any better than Jeremiah did. Verse 6. Inasmuch as there's none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations, for this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you, but they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates and is brought from Tarshish. And gold from Uphaz, the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Do you see the main point there? Look at it there in verse 9. They are all the work of skillful men. But verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. You see the difference between the two? Friends, if you have to manufacture your own God, it's no good. If you have to prop up your own God, it's no good. Your God should be the one who created you. Your God should be the one who can support you, not the other way around. Verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Stop right there, just at verse 11. Verse eleven is a little curious in the book of Jeremiah. It's the only verse in the entire book that's in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. People say, "Well, why? Why would that be verse in Aramaic? What's going on there?" Some people wonder if it's a copying error that maybe a scribe or a copyist, you know, added something in the margin. I don't think so. I think the best evidence says is that what Jeremiah is doing is he's quoting a proverb that was common among the people in that day and he wanted to give it to him in the Aramaic language because it's true. And the proverb essentially means this. Look at verse 11 again. The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under these heavens. If they didn't create the earth, they're not going to last on the earth. And it seems to be a proverb that he quotes of the day. Verse 12. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. And he stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend to the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is is not like them for he is the maker of all things and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance the lord of hosts is his name isn't that great this wonderful contrast between the idols that can't do anything and the lord god who reigns over his creation now we seem to shift gears abruptly at verse 17 We go really from what was a very poetic and powerful description of the superiority of God over the idols. Verse 17, the Babylonian army is breathing hot down our neck and Jeremiah sees, prophetically speaking, the invasion that's about to come. Look at verse 17. Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land, And will distress him that they may find it so. Friends, he's crying out to them, gather everything you got, run for your lives. But what does God say? Look at it in verse 18. I will throw out the inhabitants of the land. Friends, you want to know what a vivid phrase of speech God uses there? Literally in the ancient Hebrew, to throw out the inhabitants of the land is to slingshot them out. Think of David casting around that sling, letting the rock go, and it flies with tremendous force. God says, I'm going to slingshot you out of the land. And he did. You know, it's been confirmed by archaeology. When the Babylonians came down and conquered Jerusalem and Judah, every city was wiped out. There is no record of continuous occupation. They have not found a city in Judah proper that was continuously occupied through the 70 or so years of, 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 of exile. They were destroyed. Now, some of the cities were reinhabited, of course, but they were all depopulated because God slung them out of the land. Verse 19 Woe is me for my hurt, my wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity and I must bear it. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children are gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch up my tent anymore or to set up my curtains. It's this cry of despair from the person on the run, conquered, destroyed. There's no strength left within them. And then verse 21. For the shepherds have become dull hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. Friends, that's a heavy verse right there. Verse 21 The shepherds have become dull hearted and have not sought the Lord. Now, when someone like Jeremiah in the context of ancient Israel uses that term shepherds, he means it in two senses. He means it of political leaders and of spiritual leaders. And it was true of both of them. The political leaders and the spiritual leaders, they had not sought the Lord and calamity was going to come. Verse 23. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself, It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. It's an agonized plea that ends chapter 10. The agonized plea goes something like this. God, I see it in my prophetic vision. I see the desolation that's going to come upon Judah. God, don't put it on us. Put it on the Babylonians. They're worse than we are. Put the judgment on them and not upon us. Now, if I can say that was a prayer that was eventually answered. God dealt with the Babylonians in time. Don't you worry about that. But don't you see that there's an instinct here? God, cannot somebody stand in the place of judgment for me? Instead of judging us, can you not judge the Babylonians instead? That instinct to have a substitute stand in your place when it comes to judgment—don't you think that's the instinct that was fulfilled in what Jesus did on the cross? Now we we don't look to the Babylonians, so to speak. We say, oh God, I humble myself before you and won't you please put the judgment that I deserved upon him. Not upon the Babylonians, but upon the sinless, spotless son of God, a substitute in my place. Deflect your judgment away from me and upon him, not because he deserves it, but because he from a willing heart Has received it to save a people unto himself. Father that's my prayer. I pray that every person in this room. Would be of such a heart and such a mind. That when they sense the conviction of sin that when they may note where in one area or another they may fall short before you, that they would look to you, Jesus, and see the surpassing sacrifice that you made on their behalf and say, Lord, please, would you put the judgment upon your spotless son? Please, Lord. I cannot bear the judgment, but your son could. So please do this, Lord. And Father, I pray for all of us, that you would bring us to that humble place before you, where we would never glory in our might, in our wealth, in our strength, nor in our wisdom. But Lord, we would glory in you and you alone. Help us do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, hey, Lars. People texting any questions? A lot of
1: questions. A lot of questions. Almost an overload, a deluge of questions tonight. So I don't know if we'll be able to get through all of them. So we'll try as as much as we can. Pick
0: out about 10 minutes worth.
1: There we go. Okay. Uh, People wanted to know, um, do you see a judgment happening on a a certain people uh, like what was supposed to happen on Judah that Jeremiah is talking about, like in in today's world or today's society? Do you see anything like that?
0: We do not have infallible prophets upon the earth today. And we can only definitively trust the word of an infallible prophet to say this is the judgment of God. We may see things with peoples, with nations, with whatever, and say, man, that looks like it to me. But unless we have some inner knowing of the secret mind of God, I don't know if we can say definitively, but we could say probably, or it seems to me. And so I, I don't think we can say with, with, with definiteness.
1: Now, do you think God sees the sin of the world in in sort of the same way that he sees the sin of Judah right now, that he sees it in such extreme measure, just the depravity that we're kind of seeing around the world, even, even I, in the last I months?
0: think that, uh, I'll just speak for Western culture and the United States, I think that we're deserving of judgment from God and we're, we're moving to a more and more degraded place.
1: Um, uh, talking about uh, the idolatry that we kind I, I, of... I
0: remember a quote from Billy Graham. Supposedly Billy Graham said this. He said, if God doesn't judge the United States of America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Now, let me give you the wild card to that is... The announcement or the sense of impending judgment is always an opportunity to repent. And God's repentance on behalf of God's people and the community as a whole, it can turn aside even the certain announced judgment. Remember Jonah? He walks through Nineveh saying, the judgment's coming. nowhere judgment's coming. And Jonah's happy about the judgment. The Ninevites got radical and they repented. They got so radical in their repentance that their cows repented. They repented so radically that God relented and delayed by many years the judgment that he said was going to come upon them immediately. So a people may be deserving of judgment, but they may repent and, and either withhold or, or put off that judgment.
1: Now, where do you, um, just in terms of these messages from Jeremiah, this might be, uh, is just interesting for me, is to, are, were these originally orally spoken or were they written down for, you know, for reading or, uh, you know, how do you think these were transmitted? To, do we have any idea how they're transmitted to the people?
0: Well, in some places we're told that God spoke. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jeremiah gave a message at the temple gate. And that seems to have been spoken first, probably, and then recorded. Um, other instances, it might have been written first. So I don't think there's any one way that it was recorded. Sometimes written, sometimes spoken first.
1: Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, the celebrity culture and how that's become kind of the modern form of idolatry or one of the modern forms of idolatry. I mean, when do you think that it becomes that in the human heart? Um, you know, when does it cross the line of just, you know, I'm interested in what certain celebrities are doing and who's getting married and divorcing and all those kind of things that happen in that world. And when do you think it's, you know, is it okay to follow that in any way? What, what do you think about that?
0: Um, I think that there's, there's some... Difficult to define line between an a a interest in the culture around us and an inappropriate interest in such things. But one thing to tell for sure is if if it takes the place of your devotion to God. You know, I mean, to kind of put it in dumb terms, you know, especially because probably nobody reads it anymore. But if you'd say if you're if you're much more interested in People Magazine than your Bible, that would be an indication, wouldn't it? So isn't something wrong there? Isn't that like a test you would go to the doctor and you look at your chart and he goes, wow, this, this isn't good. You know, look. <laughs> so, I mean, just, you know, th- that would be a, like a diagnostic. You say, well, nobody reads People Magazine anymore. But, yeah, you get the idea, whatever it would be. If it would distract you from your genuine devotion to God.
1: How about social media? Do you think that can be a form of idolatry just following not really celebrities but well, just normal you know, people? Any,
0: and listen, here's the thing. Good things can make the worst idols. In many ways, social media can be a good thing, used for God's glory and used for good in the world. But oftentimes, it's good things that make the most difficult idols. So sure, somebody can do that. they They can center their life around, you know, how am I perceived on social media? How many likes do I get? How many friends do I have, so to speak?
1: So, uh, somebody just uh, had a quench, kind of a, um, just an interest in the fact that uh, Baals is in the plural. I'm not sure which verse is taken from. Was there multiple Baals during during this time, or does that refer to just different statues?
0: Well, Baal was sometimes a generic word for a master. And so, sometimes it would be applied to a multiplicity of gods, but there was one in particular, Baal, that was in the Canaanite pantheon of gods, but then there were other God's that had it, uh, Baal Zebub, Baal this, Baal that. And so there were the Baals as well. Okay.
1: A lot of attention uh, paid uh, to jeremiah nine twenty 920, nine twenty four a lot of people love that verse, and, uh, and I think it was really interesting to see how that it falls right in the middle of the context of a lot of judgment yes um, first first off, somebody had this interesting thought does does that kind of point to the gospel message that is best to glory and that we understand and know god does that does that have anything to do with a with a, with a gospel message in that way that we can well, it God.
0: certainly does in that, if anything, that, that understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, which is essentially the gospel message, um, it should take our, li- our eyes off of ourself and put them firmly on the Lord and on his glory. And that's, that's, that's the whole purpose of the gospel message, to restore man to right relationship with God again. And this, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that he has real relationship with me.
1: Somebody asked this, can there there be a pride of knowing God? Um, You know, that you glory in the fact like, hey, I know God, but you don't know God. There is not a
0: single virtue that cannot be perverted and twisted into a sin. Uh, Even humility. A person can become proud over their humility. Great irony right right. there. Isn't it? it? how Go around thinking, well, I'm more humble than you. I bet I'm 10 times more humble than you. You know, that, that kind of thing. And uh, yes, but of course, um, and, and, and of course, this is a very subtle strategy of Satan. If he can't stop you from pursuing the Lord, then what he wants to do is kind of pervert it, if he can, to make you proud and self-superior
1: and, and make you think like you're some kind of super Christian that's above everybody else. Self-righteousness type yes. of thing. Um, and then uh, just a practical question, you know, how can we satisfy ourselves in God? I mean, what are the ways that we can understand and know God uh, and get closer to God for somebody?
0: You, you can't do it apart from real relationship with him. And I, I know that that's a very strange thing to say. I, I would not blame a person for saying, relationship with God, what are you talking about? You know, how, how do you relate? What does that even mean? You know what, I talk to the open air in my bedroom and I have a relationship. What does that mean? Well, listen. You get to know God and develop relationship with him the same way you develop relationship with anybody else. You put your attention upon God. You listen to him. You spend time with him. You speak to him. You bring him into the experiences of your life. I mean, these are ways that you would get to know and develop relationship with anybody who walks this earth. The same principles apply in your relationship with God. So consciously spend time with him. Bring him into the experiences of your day. Um, Consciously listen to him by reading his word. Speak to him and tell him. Isn't openness of heart an important thing in getting to know somebody? So speak to God with an open heart. Don't try to hide things from him. You know, don't be like the child, you know, speaking to God with your fingers crossed <laughs> behind your back. And, and, and the, these are just very normal ways that we get to know each other in relation. And, and, and it functions in the way that we get to know God as well.
1: Um, uh, in that, I think it's either in the verse after it says that God delights in this. Yes. And I was just thinking about just that idea of, uh, the, you know, can we, is that something that we should focus on is that God is, you know, just happy about us knowing him, that the, the, when we come to God, he, he just has like a certain delight. How do we kind of play that out in our spiritual lives? Well, when we
0: understand how beautiful it is to have the delight of God, then, then it makes us want to pursue it all the more. God's delight is not only his reward, it's also our reward. There is something so appropriate with us recognizing our creaturely place before God. You're the creator. I am your creature. I will take my proper place in your plan. And I just want to bring delight to you. There's something so perfect because it suits who we are and what he created us to be.
1: I think that's a, that's a good place to close tonight. Okay. David, would you pray for us? Father, we pray that you would help us to have a
0: sense of truly to stop glorying in the wrong things, to truly glory in the pursuit of knowing you and understanding you, and to have the great satisfaction of knowing that we bring delight to you. Help us with that, God. Help us to live in it and walk in it, in Jesus' name. Amen.